Each one of our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has its own tone and its own history. Each one has its own theological leaning. Each one has its own intended community. And to have these four visions of the gospel, these four different views of Christ's life among us is a great gift. It means that we have four different angles of information to help us better understand the full picture of Christ's earthly life. Now, three of these versions, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels from the Greek words meaning one vision or one view. These three, while they're never identical, they share similar material. Even where there are gaps or embellishments between them, it's quite clear that all three Gospels shared influences. This morning's Gospel, the Gospel of John, is the odd man out of our four Gospels. While John is clearly telling many of the same stories as his brothers in evangelism, his influences and his source material are very different. John is not written only to Jewish believers or only to Gentiles. John is talking to a mixed audience of people, many of whom may not be believers yet. He is doing the work of convincing in many of his, of his stories. The new followers of this new religion, when John was writing, found themselves constantly on the outside of things, misunderstood, persecuted for beliefs that no one else really could get the hang of. They were living counterculturally just for choosing to learn more about Jesus. Because he was dangerous, even long after his death, politically, socially, religiously. And in our story this morning from John, we meet Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. We don't know a lot about what kind of leader he was, although we can assume he had some status since he was a Pharisee. And we do know that the gospel writer considered him a leader of the Jews. And so because of all of this, it's no real wonder that Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the cover of darkness. He comes at night. He comes in the off hours when his peers are at home studying or sleeping. He comes when he won't be recognized, when he won't be seen. And he comes to question. He comes to question Jesus. Not in the same way that his fellow Pharisees had come to challenge and to discredit. Nicodemus even starts his query by acknowledging Jesus as a rabbi, as someone sent from God. And for a man in Nicodemus's position, this admittance alone is dangerous territory. But Nicodemus needs some answers. What Jesus was preaching on one hand and what Nicodemus had learned and known all of his life were not the same. And he was unsettled by this. His acknowledgement of Jesus's rabbinical status and his respectful tone show that he was beginning to unpack and beginning to get that Jesus was different. But his questions show that he didn't yet understand how or why. 
And so Jesus and Nicodemus begin this Abbott and Costello who's on first style banter, which lays wide open Nicodemus's lack of depth and nuance, even given his extensive learning. Jesus takes Jesus's teaching to be born from above, literally, and then gets all tangled up in Jesus's instructions about renewal and rebirth in the life of faith. And around and around they go. And around and around we go. Back here at the beginning of Lent, every year in Lent, we are reminded anew of these stories and of Jesus's walk to the cross. In these weeks, time expands and contracts as we read these stories and we see that they are marked with hate and hope and violence and resurrection. But the part that we are liable to forget is that Jesus's journey toward his death did not begin in his adulthood. Jesus's walk to Golgotha did not begin in his 30s. It began from the moment of his birth, from the incarnation when God became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus was pointing his face toward his ultimate destruction and our ultimate salvation. From the moment of his birth, he was living a life of depth and breadth, a life of meaning and healing and loving and he showed us what it meant to live with the purest of integrity from the beginning of his life all the way until the end. Everything he did, everything he was, challenged the standing hierarchy that valued power over love, as our presiding bishop reminded us last week. And perhaps the hardest thing about all of, the hardest part about this whole thing is that everything that Jesus did and was, he did in order that we might learn how to live lives of meaning and integrity as well. Now, don't get me wrong, we are not called into perfection. The position of Messiah has already been filled. We are not called to be the Son of God, not one of us. We are not called to begin a movement or to die by torture in order to redeem the world. But we are called to look at the world with eyes of wonder and curiosity, with hearts turned and tuned to the needs of those around us, with minds fixed on the love of God and the care of our neighbor, even if our neighbor does not share our beliefs. That is the lesson that is the whole host of lessons we learn from Jesus Christ. Yesterday morning, parishioner Cindy Bartol shared a beautiful prayer with our liturgy guild. It was written in honor of the work of Roman Catholic Archbishop and martyr Oscar Romero and written by Bishop Ken Utener. The prayer contains so many things, but in this particular part, I think, it sums up the work we do as active Christians in the world. It goes like this. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing they hold future promise. 
We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. Nicodemus wants to know about the mechanics of emergence a second time from a mother's womb. While Jesus is talking about the rebirth of a life of faith, the recommittal to walking the difficult road, the renewal of discipleship. Lent is the time when we remember that God requires nothing more or less than our entire lives, our bodies and souls. Lent is yet another opportunity to be reborn into the Christian life, to renew our commitment, to plant those seeds, to build those foundations, to knead that bread, knowing that in many cases, maybe even most cases, we will never see the results. Lent is also a time to acknowledge that we are gathering the fruits of gardens that others tended eating the bread that others baked, and living in buildings that someone built long before us. Our ancestors in early Christianity used Lent as a time for preparation for baptism, often taking them away from the community they had come to love and be loved by. But then on the morning of Easter day, as the sun rose, the candidate for baptism would be fully immersed in the waters of baptism, anointed with healing oils, and then physically turned to face the rising sun with the promise of new life in that community of Christ. We believe that baptism only happens once, but that the possibility for renewal is ongoing and never ending. And we have that opportunity again all the time, but especially in this Holy Lent. I invite you to explore the ways you might be reborn into our common life of faith. How will you prepare your heart and your body and your mind and your soul to greet the rising sun on Easter morning, washed and renewed and anointed with the Holy Spirit? It is true, we are workers and ministers, not master builders or messiahs. And we have so much work to do here in this place and beyond. Amen.